All right, so we're back for episode four, talking about Band of Brothers. This episode is really about Sergeant Bull Randleman, for the most part. It's called Replacements, and Sayer is here again. Sayer, thanks for jumping on, man. Glad to be here. All right, so we've gone through, just kind of as a recap for anybody who's joined in for the first time, we're walking through one Band of Brothers episode at a time, talking about some key points that jump out to us, just kind of rehashing a series that was strangely really important in both of our lives, Um, both having come from the 101st Airborne Division, both in high school when this thing came out in 2001, and uh, yeah, just having a lot of fun talking through episode by episode. We blink, and here we are, episode four of 10, called Replacements, and that's kind of, it's an interesting angle for an episode, if you ask me, just the idea of these guys all train together for so long, and then they go through a little bit of combat, and, and due to losses, sickness, injuries, deaths, they need to refill their ranks, and that's when these brand new paratroopers show up in England, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's interesting that they told that story, I th- because I think it could easily have been overlooked and just focused on that Tacoa original and well, all the shit that they did and then you know people come and go and people die and people live and that's kind of what it is and that's all true but that had to have been awkward for everybody um the people that didn't jump into d-day that didn't train for two and a half years you know we've talked about that in the prior ones how long this cohort was together it's not just that they deployed together per se but the fact that they did kind of the basic AIT thing for two and a half years. Their entire military um, career, right? That's more that's more important than any like sticks lane evaluation or whatever, or airborne wings, which is a three-week course. Um, it's just different. But then we all learn, you know, this episode definitely shows that same team, same fight. And a lot of times, you know, you learn it the hard way. One of the reasons I like studying military history is to me, it's the extremes of human nature. So like you see the best of the best, you know, people giving their lives to save a brother and then the worst of the worst, we see some mm-hmm. horrible atrocities. And you, it's really, there's very few things in my opinion um, that happen as often as war do, where you can really go back and see all of these extremes. So there's so many things that apply outside. And to me, this is one of them, the idea of replacements the idea that the replacement is never good enough. They're never measuring up. Rarely does the guy walk in the door and you say, but that's not just military. I mean, mm-hmm. when you're working in a job and you've been with a team, you know, an office job, and you've been with a team for three years and a new guy shows up, he's on the outside. She's on the outside. Mm-hmm. And I've been on both sides of that, military and out, trying to come into the cohesive group that knows what they're doing. Um, and I've been the jerk on the inside, says that guy's not good enough. They don't yeah. know what we've done. Um, just interesting. It's, it's, we see it here in the military context, but this is, I mean, it's an everyday thing. I think that to me, that's a value of being in the military. Ultimately, it's got nothing to do with jumping that airplane, shooting people, deploying or combat. It's getting out of that comfort zone and being a replacement. Because even those Tacoa guys were all replacements when they all showed up. Uh, three years prior to that from all across the country, not knowing anybody and that awkwardness. And then um, am I going to fit in? Or am I going to wash out? Cause remember that they had those heavy washout things, not knowing what's going to happen to them. These replacements here are just earlier on that timeline because obviously they're going to get through it with their CIBs and multi and mustard state, you know, combat jumps and Bastone and all the, and the Eagle's nest. They're going to be a part of all that and come back. A stud, you know, CIBs, all that stuff. But they're just earlier on that timeline until they learn to come into themselves. And that's the beauty of it, of the military or even a sports team um, in a certain sense um, where you just plug in and you got to kind of get along with people that you don't necessarily um, are friends with or even would be friends with if you had a choice. Um, and it's just doing those, it's uncomfortable, but then learning to get comfortable doing those sort of uncomfortable things. And, um, this was at the highest level, of course. I mean, in my opinion, with the the war context. 
there's, it seems like this is the kind of thing that's inevitable in any organization, right? You've got somebody trying to come into the team, they're unproven. Um, but there's a scene early on when they're in the, in the bar, they're drinking, shooting darts. And one of the privates, his name escapes me right now. I believe he's a private, but one of the original Tacoma men was giving the guy shit saying, you know, what's that presidential unit citation? You didn't earn that. And, um, you know, it, it turned out that that guy actually hadn't jumped either. Right. He got wounded in the plane, yeah. but it seems like there's always going to be that kind of ribbing. There's always going to be that you got to prove yourself before we'll accept you. But then throughout the episode, there's the leaders like Randleman and like um, Sergeant Garnier that there's this tough face, but they're ready to accept these guys trying to pull them in as well. Like it's the leader's job to kind of break down that wall, if you will, right? If, yeah. And, you know, the leader's got to squash the hazing too and the negativity. And it's hard. There's bullying that goes on, you know, and, uh, it's that adapt or overcome sort of thing too, because I think also, I think a part of it is this high, high intensity stress environment where you have to weed out weakness constantly and you have to be able to trust the person you're right or left. And if there's any hint of weakness, I mean, it's going, it's, it's like the uh, Christmas lights. It's, it's going to break the whole line truly. Um, and so they can't trust these guys until they see what they've done because they've seen the last, they know every, even if they probably don't get along and think that guy is a piece of shit. Like I don't like, he's an asshole or something. Um, but you know, he, he, you know, he went through it all. So at the end of the day, when he's shoulder to shoulder to me, I, you know, we're going forward. It's probably not saying, cause they probably had their, in their minds. And I think they were, these replacements were fast tracked and um, they probably, I would, they probably, at least the way it's portrayed to me, they viewed them almost like regular army guys coming in. It's almost like you got, um, you know, this highly trained unit. We know that the paratroopers were, and I'm sure they had a chip, they, were they blouse or boots, that they're doing that because they feel better than what's called a leg, which is just your regular army guys. And those would be the guys storming the beaches. So it's funny how everybody has a chip on the shoulder. Who does, you know, well, we jumped in. Well, I think it's, I think that's badass jumping in behind enemy lines at night. Freaking awesome. Okay. Um, with a, like a flotilla, an armada in the sky. That's pretty awesome. But it's also pretty badass to be, <laughs> I mean, can you imagine? I mean, that's the Saving Private Ryan stuff, storming the beaches. So yeah, they were legs. Okay. And so the parents can say, yeah, you're a bunch of legs. They're storming the beaches with in front of machine gun fire and, and some people are climbing a cliff where they're just pointing a machine gun right down on top of them and they're going hand over hand up a rope i mean and uh that's all badass to me and that goes to the what i'm getting at is the guy um that private whatever who's criticizing the replacements where bull randleman kind of he said you know well you didn't fight in normandy either well yeah that's also true but guess what he didn't fight because he got shot in an airplane like, that's badass, too. And so they downplay that while they're there, right? That, well, yeah, you didn't do shit on Normandy. Well, this guy still went through, like, three years of training or whatever to be an elite paratrooper. And the reason he didn't fight was because he, he got shot before he even could. And he, he got shot in the middle of an airplane trying to jump out in the middle of no man's, not no man's land, but uh, bad guy territory at night. So I think that that conversation was interesting because... I think to a lot of us viewers, everything that they're doing is tremendous and badass. But you can see they individually are all downplaying almost all of it in a certain sense because they're just, you know, they're there to do their thing. It was interesting to me before the episode started when one of the actual members of the unit said he didn't like getting to know the replacements because he thought maybe they were trying to prove themselves and they'd get killed quickly. It was just breaking his heart to have these new guys come in. And it makes me think about the, this, the tough position they're in, because there's nothing a replacement can do, again, to take this to any organization anywhere. There's nothing you can say that's going to that's gonna turn the whole team and say, you know what, actually, that Preston, he's going to be just fine. Mm-hmm. It's almost always about actions, almost always about showing your capability, showing your effective, showing whatever it might be. And it seems like that line 
of showing you're effective versus doing something stupid in a combat environment that could get you killed is really, really narrow. And if you've never mm-hmm. been in a fight before, you might not know where that line is. And I wonder if that's where um, some of that was coming from. It's kind of what he's hinting at, right? Well, it's that first 90 day thing. That's what we had on deployment, you know, in our modern era, the 12 month cycles. Remember, they didn't know when they were coming home. It wasn't a rotation. Ours were rotational deployments for a set period of time. Um, They didn't know when they were coming back. And um, it's, I think it's, yeah, they, they, they did the first 90 days because they've been in contact before and they've seen the callousness of war, the unjustness, the unfairness, the business-like aspect of it. And um, their eyes are open more, I think, in a sense. And so that first 90 days, a conventional unit, it takes a lot of freaking casualties because they're learning the terrain and situational awareness. And that's when the report, I mean, it kind of happened to us in a way. So um, I think that that's exactly what it is. And they, they know, almost know the old timers because they're probably, they're old timers by now because they're Normandy veterans. Um, They know that, yeah, that there's a lot of people that are not going to be here for the next whatever, because they're not, again, they don't know. They just know that they're trying to get into Germany. And this Operation Market Garden, I mean, that's what it is. It's we're trying, we're, okay, we got the foothold. Let's think about big picture. We, um, jumping into Normandy is the foothold into mainland Europe with the eventual goal of Berlin. So yes, it's in France, but France is still German occupied territory. So we now have an established foothold of the Americans who haven't, I mean, pretty much, I mean, we've been in other parts, but now the allies are really trying to push over. And um, Market Garden is a is another step forward now, right? Trying to get into, you know, trying to find, poke and find a way into uh, Germany itself. So I'm going to bring this back to personal experience here real quick. Um, you hit it spot on. This is, and one of the things I really like about this series is, each episode kind of has a focus. Sometimes it's an individual focus. Like I think this one, episode four, is a focus on Sergeant Bull Randleman. Um, mm-hmm. But it's also the Market Garden focus, which there are certainly movies and shows about that, but it does get overlooked a little bit. Um, as you see, when you watch the episode, it turned out to not be a successful operation um, in terms of accomplishing all of the objectives, right? It didn't find an, easy, an easier way into Germany, as was hoped. But the way I want to bring this back on the personal level is they say something um, when they tell the troops, we're going to do this. We're going to jump into um, jump in Holland, jump in the Netherlands. I think it is. Um, they say we could end the war by Christmas. And the reason I want to bring this back on the personal level is if you remember when we were deployed in Afghanistan, the, the, the dates that we were coming home moved around a little bit. It was an early date. date kind of moved back a couple of times. I wanted to get your thoughts, pros and cons on saying something like that. I would Could be home by Christmas. No, I already know the answer. I never say. I, I don't. Well, it's hard because I just, it's very hard to mentally put ourselves in that because we're in such a 12 month time frame. And it's like, best case, it was nine months probably. Uh, worst case it was 15 months but theirs was like three years two years who knows who knows the japanese are still a problem um so i guess i could see it motivating for them because they do have a tangent they have a tangible goal in sight and that is the conquering of a nation by capturing its capital it's the old school way of doing things. And it's like, if boys, if we keep moving forward, we'll be able to do this, plant that flag by Christmas. We got to keep moving forward, keep pushing. So it's a, it's a, um, am I, you look like, okay, you're breaking up. I don't know if that's me or not, but um, it's moving forward to plant that flagpole. 
So it's, it's very hard for me to actually uh, try to put myself in that scenario. I say in a conven- conventional time frame where we almost have a contract for 12 months and we could have a change order to make it shorter if we get done early or, you know, kind of changes or uh, maybe you get extended a little longer. I would say never even float those rumors because it's, um, it's just bad. It's just, it's, you're setting up disappointment, totally setting up all frames of disappointment. I would, I would crush any rumor. As soon as I started hearing a rumor around, I would want to get people. um, I can't remember what I did. I probably was believing it and stuff because I wanted to go home. But I know that if I were to go back in time and when we get those rumors, I would, as soon as I start hearing them, because you hear the whispers, you're not, this platoon leader, you're not with them all the time, but you know the whispers. I, as soon as, you know, get them in the corner. We're not going home early. In fact, I know they said June, but listen, everything keeps going right. So why don't you start thinking July? Start thinking August is what I want you guys to start thinking because it's not going to be May. It's just not going to be May. It's not going to be uh, February or March or whatever. Get it out of your heads now. And then guess what? If you're wrong about that, who cares? You're still you're going home early. Um, but if you say you're going home early and you don't, that's just crippling. It's crushing. It's very defeating. And now you got a morale problem. And it's just you got to keep the morale up because it's terrible. But that would be that. That's where I can see the other side too, though. I, at yeah. a high level, logically, when it comes to military history. I will say that you should never say home by Christmas. We said it again in Vietnam when the 173rd Airborne got to Vietnam in May of 65. The brigade commander famously said, like, we'll be home by Christmas in 1965. We'll be home by Christmas. Right. And he didn't mean Christmas of 75. He meant, you know, seven months away. So it just never works out. I, I don't know of any occasions where somebody's laid something like that out and it's really paid off. I'm sure it's happened, but I can understand it too, because you said these guys are entering a fight. They don't know if they're going to be there for one year, six years. So to hear, Hey, this could be it. Give it what you got. I know we've been through a lot. We fought through Normandy. You jumped into Normandy. You've done all this training. Give it this big push. This could be it. And for what it's worth, if market garden had succeeded, it's possible, probably not likely that they're actually home by Christmas, but it sounds good at least, you know, and, and did that here's, here's the question. Did that, boost their performance by 20%, right? Like they gave an extra oomph thinking this is it. You know, we did the D-Day. We want to make, because it's also important because all of their friends, lots of friends and colleagues died. Brothers that died in Normandy. And so you want to make that worthwhile too. And I think that that's motivating. For me, that's enough to keep moving forward. The fact that there are Germans, they're, you know, we already got here and people died. We were with them when they died to get where we are today, but we're still not in Germany, which is why we're here to begin with. And so we're going to keep going um, until I, that I just, I, I watched it. And I'm like, oh man, don't tell them that. <laughs> don't tell them that because, but you know, it, that's the art of leadership though. You know, some people might, if, if you, if you believe it, and um and it helps morale and 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 it's not a lie it's not a lie um because it is plausible as long as it's not a lie right that's as long as it's not a lie yeah don't deceive be the truthful be truthful. and that's i guess that's what i'm saying my art of being truthful is like maybe it's more on the negative side on that aspect i'm trying to be it's a balance of uh optimism of looking forward of course because you're moving forward but then the the realism which can kind of be negative sometimes but that's the tragedy of things because you can't be all positive and cheery there are people that are all positive and cheery all the time you know but then you've got to take everything with a grain of salt and that's um not i don't think that conveys the message as clearly as when you do as a leader when you know when you actually tell the truth and say things if you don't know them um or if it's bad news, of course, and it's not the best thing, you know, but it's a real, it's also real and the truth and it's honest. And I think that that matters. Um, but that's an art of it. You know, that is all personal preference. You crack something open there. What are you drinking? I'm drinking 
I know you're dead. Athletic Brewing, non-alcoholic. All right, there we go. IPAs, and they're like 70 calories, and they taste delicious and refreshing. So I just worked out. I like to kind of have them after a workout. So because at the end of the day, you know what it is, real quick. I just gotta say it because I'm a big fan. They like the subscribe and save thing from them directly. So it's like ingredients: water, organic malt, Vienna malt, malted barley, oats, hops, yeast. And so I'm kind of drinking carb water in a sense, but they're kind of good carbs, uh, no alcohol. So yeah, it's a new thing I'm into. I like it. Well, let's uh, let's jump forward into the operation here. So as Market Garden kicks off, they're getting ready for the operation on the on the uh, on the airfield. And there were a couple things in this that stood out to me. But um, you see Sergeant Randleman coming by, and he's given his you know five years of experience in a two second speech, right? Like move your rifle like this, pop this. Anyways, one of the things he said was uh, lose your reserve. You won't need it. We're jumping low. I thought, you know what? I'm carrying that thing. Even if it, even if you tell me you're jumping too low, you won't need it. I'm thinking that nah, I'm just, in, just in case. Um, but I don't know, um, if you guys jumped. Yeah. Cause how much is a reserve we'll weight for out. people that don't know? A reserve is like, uh, everything takes up space and hey i don't want to object to a team leader who's in the shit and knows what the hell he's talking about but a reserve shoot doesn't at the end of the day it's not it's almost like a mini it's like carrying like a little mini tent in front of you you know it's not super heavy it's it's material i don't know what it was in world war ii but i think it was probably that silkish stuff so it probably wasn't too heavy um well here <laughs> don't worry about it you're jumping too low but the thing is, here's the other thing. If they're jumping low enough to where reserve doesn't matter, which is also a scenario, plausible, then you then there's no point in bringing it also. And you just know that's one of those things. They might shoot me out of the sky. My parachute might not open. I am a paratrooper jumping behind enemy lines. I've been training for this for three years. Well, not the replacements, though. That well, that's the thing. Then not the replacement. So that is the context behind all of that and listening to Randleman. So I don't know. I feel like you're a private. You take it off. That's what you do, actually, because you don't know shit. And he is there. It. it you want to bring the. That's a really good point that you brought up. Because now I'm like, I'm waffling because, hey, at the end of the day, this is a freaking. It's, it's Randleman, and he's telling me, if he's telling me, and he's that direct about it then I'm listening. I'm not going to do it and trust his guidance. I mean, that's what, that's what the NCO, that's what they're there for. That's why the duty, it's the, the burden of that leadership, of any leadership, not just NCOs. That's a great example of it. Like that trust, they're putting all of their, their life, their life, they are entrusting, especially the private rifleman at the very tip of the wedge. Who's going to get shot first. Who's going to step on an IED first in our territory. I mean, it's, it's always the worst spot to be. And, um, well, the team leaders, up, well, actually the team leaders in the front. Um, but the private's right beside. I mean, the privates are right there. Um, and we all know that. And that's the, it would be um, total betrayal to have that relationship t- being taken advantage of. You know, to where you can't trust the NCO because this private through the last however long their training was for replacement or anybody, they've been conditioned in a way to trust that and to not think. And I think maybe that, you know, something I wanted to talk about the combat piece to this was when they start getting, you know, there's periods of downtime, but then there's periods where they're taking contact. And guess what? They're in an open field. You have to move forward. And that right there, individually counterintuitive, right? Individual self-protection mode, forget military training, just human instinct you would think would be to just get down and like, you know, I don't want to be shot at anymore, get down. But you actually have to move forward and run through the bullets until you can get behind something behind cover. And it's moving forward into that wave of death. When people are like dying all around you, you have to keep moving forward. And, um, and the people moving forward, you know, you've got people pulling a team leader and you got people pushing and you have to trust their judgment because the thing is you can't think you just have to do. And you're trusting entirely off of you are 
you are vibing entirely off of that NCO's leadership and guidance. And so to like, um, it just has, that relationship has to be very, very strong. So when he says lose your reserve shoot, even as crazy as that sounds, there's a reason. There's a reason. Yeah. Um, and we as individuals immediately went to no way, you know, you start second guessing. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, but we, again, we weren't in, you know, it's hard to think about the wide eyes that the replacements also had just they're in a tough spot um, because they've heard all the stories sounds horrible. And, you know, they haven't been through it either. So that anxiety and things of the dark cloud, and you know, it's looming is um, it's a tough burden for those guys, real tough spot. Well, they eventually jump, uh, they jump in for market garden and the, the reality of it played out pretty close to what they show in band of brothers. Band of brothers looks like a training jump um, happens during daylight hours. It's accurate. Um, they all, pretty much land within the drop zone. I mean, I want to say it was over 90% landed within their designated drop zone compared to um, D-Day was, I think, less than 20%. So just totally different numbers, which, which makes sense Then, as you're watching the episode, you blink and they're all together as a company on the side of the road. You remember that didn't happen on D-Day in that first episode for like a week. They were still finding people. But Market Garden, it's an hour later, they're all together. And they start moving into a town, and I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, but bear with me. Noinen, I think is what it's called. And as they're moving into the town, they pass on this. Well, there's, you know, we're, they were in a town called Eindhoven first, and then move on towards an area called Noinen. Um, they pass a woman on the side of the road whose head is shaved, and she's holding her child. Um, collaborator. She had collaborated with, maybe slept with, um, the Nazi occupiers. And now that liberation was potentially on the doorstep, the locals or the resistance or whatever term you want to use um, is taking revenge on this woman who they viewed as um, taking the wrong side. And it just made me think um, how difficult of a position people were put in. Hmm. It's really easy now to judge her and say, you shouldn't have done that. You should have stood up to him. You should have cut the phone lines or whatever heroic stuff I've never done that I can tell somebody in the past. You should have done that. But the reality is imagine you have to take some sort of action to protect your family, mm-hmm. your kids. Just it's, I can't judge. I feel sad. It makes me sad thinking of how many people were put in impossible situations um, before, during, and after stuff like this. I'm sure that plenty of people have German heritage, so it's not a big deal either. They speak, don't they speak German or a form of German? Yeah, I mean, it's, they're, they're related. I mean, it's, um, I mean, there are closer peoples than back then. Someone from Alabama would have been with someone from New York. A Dutch German is probably more alike. A Dutch and a German, I would think. Um, to me, it's almost like Ohio and Pennsylvania or something. But not Ohio and Michigan, right? No, no. Um, no. The by the way, if have you ever read Beneath the Scarlet Sky or heard of that book? No, it's really good, and it's kind of about this same dynamic, but in Italy, and it's real. It's about a guy named Pino Lella, who was a German, kind of being an Italian guy, that his parents found his way. He found a way to be a German officer chauffeur, like a really big time German bad guy, and um, anyway. He did all sorts of stuff. And he started that way. He did all sorts of other stuff too, though. But um, it's all real. And there's romantic relationships with, you know, the women. Because there were women that, so, you know, socialites that um, wined and dined with the Germans, as well as businesses. That this was occupied territory for, what, five years? Isn't that what, off the top of my head, is what I remember? Something like that of the Germans. And, no, and a lot, majority, or a lot of people didn't like it. But there were other people that said, well, the Germans are here and I have a bar hotel and so there's entertainment and there's opportunity and um they are the ones in power so there's always going to be people that cater to those in power um i think there's going to be people that object to the way those in power do things um and that that's exactly what you have here and then i guess the strongest wins in the end 
I've started putting some content together recently around the atomic bombs being dropped at the end of the Second World War. And part of what that's done is had me go back and look at feelings at the time, interactions with people around the world at the time. And it's, it just kind of brings to light, we don't know what it's like. We, my, our generation, don't know what it's like living in an area of total war. We don't know what it's like for the first world war to have ended when we were 10 years old, right? You don't know, like Americans overwhelmingly after the second world war, right after the second world war, still supported the idea of dropping those atomic bombs today. That's changed quite a bit Mm -hmm. because we weren't living in German occupied territory. The, the experiences that these people had to deal with and the life or death decisions they had to make. It was, I feel like in my studies of history it all started out black and white good guy bad guy and the more and more i read and learn is that it's except for very small slivers on the side it's all gray mm-hmm. who am i, I to, mean who am i to judge this woman i have no idea what she's doing to try to protect her child um in a situation i'll never experience right yeah context context is everything at the same time there's also true evil evil exists too um yeah assholes selfish people uh, you know the individualism is an interesting thing that is inherent to humans but so is community too um we have this self-preservation mechanism the fight or flight the lay down in the middle of the field but then we have this inherent community tribe thing where no i can't lay down because um they might die beside me. I have to get a foothold. We all do because those guys that I just saw dropping would have died for nothing. And if they're running for it, I sure as hell am too. And that's the, there's just a fighting balance between those two things because the community things at times um, involves going in opposite to self whatever is best for individual self. Um, so it's hard to tell what each individual woman was doing. You know, I'm sure there are the single moms, but then I'm sure there's the just uh, people hungry for power and influence and that sort of thing. Greed. Well, let's jump into the battle here. Um, they start to come under fire as they enter Noinen, I believe, or on the outskirts of it. And I mean, the fight kicks off quick. It's one of those where there's a single shot and then the whole town erupts in fire. Um, the one thing I noticed, and I'm interested in your take, Sayer, the hand signals in this show are insane. I mean, they'll flash a couple signs on one another, and somehow that means two machine gun squads move around the left, set up suppressing fire at three o'clock. And, like, it's, I, I'm an artilleryman. I, I, that was my job in the army. So maybe I just didn't learn all these hand signals, but. I don't know if that's changed over time, but when they start throwing these signs back and forth and another squad just clicks into gear, it's, it's insane. It's impressive. Teamwork. Practice. Everybody knows their job. Everybody knows their role. They know where they fit, where they need to be. And then they do it. Um, it shouldn't take much communication. I remember my, I had, an, when I was an ROTC, I had an instructor who was a Chinook pilot. And he came to us as a captain and it was right after like sort of Anaconda time frame. I think he supported them. He came out of brag, but so he definitely Anaconda. deployed early Afghanistan as um, a Chinook pilot. And I remember we were doing training, you know, Chinook pilots. I, I'm sure all pilots have a chip on their shoulder. You know, I was in aviation, so I don't know, but you know, I'm sure an Apache is going to think of himself differently or herself differently than a Blackhawk pilot or, or a Chinook. They're all different. And medevac, you know, medevacs are Blackhawk. They're all in the thing is, is this goes back to the guy getting shot in the airplane. They're all doing badass things, but you know, I'm sure an Apache's like, well, I'm the most badass because I got that helmet camera thing on the history channel. Everybody sees. Um, but then a Kiowa, a Kiowa person's badass to me because they're low flying and just shooting out the side with the grease pin. They don't have the helmet. To me, that's the badass part. They don't have the technology. Um, but he said, 
he was real stuck up about Chinooks. Like he wouldn't fly in anything else. Wouldn't fly in a Black Hawk or anything. Only Chinooks. They're, because they're the best pilots. The best pilots get Chinooks. And so I could only trust a Chinook pilot. And we were taking a National Guard, uh, Novus National Guard. It's just different. It's not their full-time job. We got to understand that. Um, they would fly us to training events out in, um, we had a national forest, Wayne National Forest, uh, like hour and a half east of Ohio State and great training grounds. And the National Guard would support that training by flying so they could drill. But he was like, he said, I got to fly as a senior. I got to kind of sit up front and actually listen to the headset, which is really cool and badass. You've never been in a helicopter. You know, you get to do it. And it's a Chinook, or not Chinook, but um, uh, a Blackhawk. Because I got his seat because he was going to drive. So I got the cadre seat. That's why I got the cool seat. And he said, hey, listen. He said, forget about the helicopter ride. Because it's whatever. Once you've been on one, it's, it's not a big deal. But listen on the radio. And he said, because I'll tell you this. Because he said, I want, because he want, it was real important for him for me to take away something from this flight and not just look out the window. He said, listen, he said, good units don't talk on the radio. And just, he said, I have no idea. I don't know anybody, I, but I'll tell you, if, see if they're jaw jacking around and what they're talking about on the radio or just see what, yeah, just listen, not see, listen to what they're saying, how they're communicating to one another, both inside the chopper and then um, with everybody else. Because the radio game, is different than the hand and arm signal game because we have radios now, the you know, the walkie-talkie type stuff. And uh, anyway, he said that, and of course they're jaw jacking around, and it just it just seemed very disorganized and um, messy, it seemed kind of messy. And that was a seed that he planted in my brain as a senior that, um, well, and you know what? It reinforced what I saw in Band of Brothers too, that that type of communication. So it's not even about the method of communication. We may have had radios um, for the sort of ear mic type stuff. They only had hand and arm signals. But to me, the whole, I think the, uh, that well-trained team of any team, this is military as an example, but a football team would be the same thing, any sort of team. Um, everybody knows their job, knows what they're doing. So just, you know, that, that's giving you the focus where all your attention and energies are and you're not thinking you're just kind of doing. And so there's just zero need to communicate and keep it because it can become such a distraction that everybody loses focus. And so everybody on the ground is like all on the same page. And that's like the zone. I mean, I think I'll, I'll, I'll add to that, though. It's not necessarily no communication. It's just that it's the nonverbal communication. It's recognizing where everybody else is going to be because of the repetitions and the iterations and and. The only time you need to come on the radio per se, if you're those Blackhawks, is, is when something is going outside of the plan or outside of the norm, right? You're in formation. The only time you need to step up and, and call somebody is when you're, you know, whatever reason, not adhering to the plan. Um, uh, brevity. Brevity and less is more. Like, it took me way too long just to explain that. I mean, that's the whole point is less is more. And the more you do something, it's not like I'm podcasting all the time and YouTubing all the time. You know what I mean? And it's like, it takes practice. And when they were first doing stick slings, do you think that they were doing hand arm signals like that? No. Um, they just they dr- drilled it down so many times. Brevity. Less is more. Go. And that can go with writing. It can go with right now how I'm talking. Less is more. And that practice is what you see in an elite unit like this. The 101st Airborne, World War II is an elite unit. Um, they're still thought of that way today. When we look back at this time period, they were you know, the tip of the spear. But there's a part of this battle, I think, that brings it, it kind of squashes some of the romanticism of the paratroopers. Because, yes, the paratroopers are elite, um, especially at this time in, in military history. They're asked to do the impossible, and they do, and, and, but they can't do everything. Right. Different military units are designed to do different things. And paratroopers aren't really designed to take on tanks. Yes, they have bazookas, which are somewhat effective. With the American bazooka against German tanks for a long time there, it was more about a lucky shot than a good shot. Um, For the most part, paratroopers had a very, very difficult time stopping German tanks. So you've got this entire company plus of the 101st Airborne heading into this town. One tank turns around the corner. 
and they run. That's not cowardly. To me, that shows it's kind of this break of the romanticism of, you know, paratroopers have a specific mission, a specific job to do, and how tanks in the battlefield are incredibly formidable. Mm-hmm. It changes the scenario entirely. Um, and that's just called, that's a battle drill. It's called break contact. And again, that's when you're not thinking. So it's a movement contact. Um, and break contact, I don't know what the doctrine would have been back then, but traditionally now it's, or Cold War style as, you know, we were taught in our era, three to one. So you need three times as many of you to them. And if it's, if it's that, and then it's your judgment, of course, but that's a rule of thumb. If it's um, two guys with a machine gun, though, that might be more, you know, that's different. Machine guns change things. Tanks change things. And anyway, then you break contact. So if it's too many, if you're outnumbered five to one, you break contact. So you're doing a movement to contact. Yes, that's a battle drill. And then you react to contact, meaning you're engaged. And then you move to the next. What's the next? Well, I'm either going to assault through the objective or I'm going to break contact. You mentioned either something. way I'm moving. See, I'm moving. That is the, la- that's the thing I'm moving. And so there's no, they're not going to, it would be a, it would be a futile exercise to go up against a tank. And that's the just leader judgment on the ground is like, I'm not going to get guys worthlessly killed. You brought something up right as we were getting started here. And it was around the idea of no unnecessary damage to the structures, right? The, the, the Americans, you go tell the British tanker, there's a tank right around the corner. And he says, I can't shoot it. It's through a building. I can't shoot it. No unnecessary damage, which is an interesting conversation because um, by this point, the late in 44, um, Europe is in ruins due to strategic bombing and, and, and just attacks in every direction. The continent is, is on fire. Mm-hmm. And it's this weird little mix of, but right here, we can't destroy buildings. And it just stands out because that type of mentality is um, noble on the one hand, but doesn't have a lot of shelf life in the Second World War. You're going to blink and uh, there's going to be bombs falling pretty indiscriminately on this town. You know? Well, and you know, that's another staff officer decision. Okay. That's not on the ground. And that's the thing that you got to deal with. And it's very frustrating because especially the paratroopers who are on the ground, who aren't in tanks and armor, they're the, like the lightest form of infantry. They're not even using a lot of grain. I mean, there's a lot of, I'm, I would like to know that because like the different, the, the grain versus the paratrooper carbine, because I thought they would all have carbines. And in the show, a lot of, you see a lot of grand usage. Um, and I really don't know what was, is that accurate? Or were they all actually doing carbines? Who had what? You see the Thompsons, that's a light um, gun. But they're not, I mean, Thompson's shooting a pistol round. So, which is like for trenches. And again, it's not, I mean, it's more upfront and moving. It's mobility. That's what they're all about. And that's definitely not track vehicles. That's not those, um, even those like howitzer things that those Germans have. With these big, toad, toad artillery, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if those are anti-personnel or not. I feel like those are anti-vehicular type stuff. Um, kind of field guns. Yeah, it's just not. I mean, it's just like basically the uh, a machine gun nest. I feel like that's the highest amount. It's the machine gun is probably the biggest threat that the paratrooper is going to face. And then other than that, you're breaking contact. If it's the tra- if it's the big vehicles coming in. Um but that's the team because we do have armor and tanks and, you know, to help. Right behind. Uh, there, there, were, there was British armor not far behind. That's the concept. We didn't talk about this much, but the concept of Operation Market Garden was the paratroopers go in, secure some towns and bridges for British armor to come through mm-hmm. and, and, and clear a path. So very similar mm-hmm. to what was happening on D-Day, paratroopers go in early, secure a few areas, a few key road crossings and villages and bridges. Um, it just didn't work in Market Garden. There was a little more German resistance there than expected, but mm-hmm. the, plan, the plan wasn't for the paratroopers to take on armor, just wait. Allied armor is right behind. And specific to this case, or, you know, it would be what my whole point with them being, um, they're under armor. I mean, they're under protected against this heavier asset. And so, and they're getting pinned down. Um, 
And then the fact that you've got rear people questioning that judgment when you're saying, just, you, they're there, I've seen them. And they're like, well, hold on, we got to wait. And it's, that's incredibly frustrating. And that's coming up from higher up, or, you know, according to the adjacent units. And that's the team building trust thing back to that. Um, the, at the end of the day, you, yes, they're the same team, but they haven't worked together before. And so the British people are, you know, the British are being told to look out for the buildings. That's what they're under. That's what their bosses are telling them. Yeah, kill the Germans, but look out for buildings. That's really important, okay? And then the Americans are saying, the Germans are killing I mean, I'm a paratrooper with a shooting pistol rounds, and they're blowing howitzer things at me, blowing buildings up. <laughs> Forget the civilian part, really. Just the Germans are more pressing, and they're, they're at us right now. And then, and then those people that can actually support and help aren't doing anything for a while. Um, until they get the word, essentially. And that's where initiative and judgment comes in with all of that in communication. And again, there's no right or wrong answer of all of this because everybody's trying to follow the commander's intent. It's just you have multiple commanders doing a tanker's got a different mission than the paratrooper. Uh, you know, we've been describing it. So the one of the major scenes in the show or in this episode comes up when Bull gets wounded. Um can't escape because the Germans essentially counterattack is, is how this plays out. The Americans attack into the village. They run into German armor. Germans flood out of all these different buildings, counterattack, push the Americans out. Bull is left behind. Um, not intentionally. That may be a topic to get into here in a minute, but he's in this barn and there's a lot here, but it, one of the things that I really took out of it was this weird mix. If you watch when, there's, you know, a local man, and I think his daughter is probably the relationship there. They come into this barn like nothing had happened. People had died in their village that day, right? But yeah. it was just another normal day. Um, and just to me, it's this idea of, yeah, it's a battlefield, but it's also their home. And what are you going to do? Life goes on. Whether or not there was a fight that morning, whether or not somebody died in your garden earlier that day, life goes on. And just kind of the weird nature of some of this warfare fighting through towns where people are living. And then, cause it all was a surprise, you know, I think that's, you know, they're not, um, the allies aren't dropping the leaflets that the civilians know to get out, to make it fighting ground. You know, it's, it's German occupied territory and it's coming any day, but I don't know. I feel like I want to be in my basement being a seller or something. That was early in the episode, right? They went down to the bomb shelter, the dad and the son, at least, the little kid that was trying chocolate for the first time. Yeah. Hang on the bomb shelter. That's, and just stay there until, you don't know what. I mean, the Germans weren't killing all the locals anyway. So it's not like, the Germans were already there. And so I feel like they're not going to start murdering civilians all of a sudden, are they? And the Americans are trying to free you anyway. So it's like, I'm just going to stay in my basement and wait until they're all done killing each other. I think that's an easy thing to say today. Well, yeah. I think at the time, the idea of do I look out the door when what if there's an American rifleman watching the door to shoot anything that moves? Um, yeah, do I, do I know I, that happens. Do I put a flag out the window to show that I'm that I support, um, you know, the the, uh, the the resistance? Well, I wouldn't. <laughs> It's not clear not yet, right? So, so then are the Americans going to blow up the house because it could be a defensive position? The, the, the nastiness of civilians caught in combat, when I really put my head to it, it's there's no solution. I mean, stepping forward, walking forward to surrender doesn't mean anything. It might not. What if it's one of those replacements manning a machine gun and it's at night or in dusk or whatever? He gets a little nervous. Yeah, but- that's what I mean. It's like you got to just bury your and hide in a hole or something as deep as you can go and hope that it all passes. The answer, is to, the answer is to not be there. But, mm-hmm. of course, that's not, not always realistic. Yeah. No, it's war as hell. There's two parts here I want to hit on before we wrap up, and they're kind of intertwined. Um, bulls left behind technically um on the left behind part because this, this is the combat part so before you do that i want to mention just real quick something to think about compton i don't there's a part in there i wanted to mention and he said because he was gonna he, he said leave me behind 
because he got um, shot in the leg, right? Yeah. And he's, you know, just said, look, it's a math problem and just go. And what I think is what's important about that. And he said, let's let the Germans capture me. And I think the way it's presented is like, you know, Germans capture me, I'll be fine. But I don't think you take it as that. I don't think it's, he's just going to go up and kill them. You can't think about his perspective at that point. Look at what they were doing to Germans. When they were, they weren't capturing Germans, but they were killing them all. They were killing everybody. And I think that he said that knowing that, that you know, the Germans are just going to kill him. It's to me, he's, he's offering to throw himself on a hand grenade for those two guys saying to me, he's, he's giving his life in that moment because I don't think the Germans there's this presumption. I don't think there's a presumption that he's just going to be a POW camp or anything. Um, these fighting back and forth, they're killing each other. They're killing it. You know, it's hit or miss in Germany against Germany for the war. I mean, I would say, I mean, try to compare it to other conflicts, right? But raising your hand as surrender never guarantees anything with any military, right? Because you, mm-hmm. who are you surrendering to? There's, there's a person on the other side of that rifle making a decision that may or may not um, think you're being genuine or want to, sur- want to see you surrender. Um, with people to his left or right backing up that decision, whatever yeah. it is. So it's, it's really hard to say, like, this would have happened or that would have happened. But Germany was taking a fair amount of prisoners, given the opportunity. Mm. And the 101st, the Airborne Forces had no means to take prisoners in the first day or two. So there's a lot about that. But as the war progressed, they were, they were taking some. Um, so I wouldn't say that it was 100% ready to give his life. Um, but it's it's certainly not completely in the other direction either. I think that's a good point. Yeah. It's, it's a, still at the very, at the very selfless least. leadership, yeah. you know. Um, it's just that decision, you know. So I, I don't know. I just, I, and of course they grabbed them, you know. They, they figured a way out. They were creative, creative problem solving in a zone, in, a, in an environment where there are no perfect answers. So Bull is, as the fight wraps up, I think it ends in the barn. I'm pretty sure Bull sticks a bayonet into the guy's throat or face. So that's the kind of thing that sticks with you after the war. Um, there's a reason they didn't show that in the scene. And looking at girl in the eyes. Yeah. So that's that's uh, the stuff of nightmares for sure. Yeah. Um, anyways, Bull is in the barn. He comes out in the morning. He's been He's been left behind, essentially, right? But there's a couple things I wanted to hit on here. And first is this concept. I feel like in modern day, we've got this ingrained in us. And it's a positive thing that says no one's ever going to be left behind. No matter what. You Mm -hmm. recover bodies off the battlefield. And I just want to say, because it's really hard to ever bring this up without upsetting someone, that's not always feasible. And that's like, if they would have spent time trying to recover Ignore bull. What about the, the, the killed in that village? It could have cost 10, 20, 30, 40 more lives. The entire company falls apart. The retreat gets chewed up. It's, it's, it's a good thing to have in our hearts. Always try to make that effort. But in reality on the battlefield, it's just not always a feasible thing. And that's not a knock on the soldiers that had to retreat. No, I mean, I think, yeah. And who would want, like, who would want their own, I don't know, I would much rather my body rot in the ground than other people die trying to get a dead body. That's uh, just a freaking body. That's just me. And how many people have lost lives and limbs doing a battle damage assessment trying to look at or gather the enemy's body? You know, just to do that sort of, you know, we do that in the present day. And that's a risk. And that's an assessment too on the ground. It's like, is that even worthy? Like, what are we getting out of that? Um, it's all dangerous. I mean, people are trying to kill you. So Bull's left behind. Um, it's not clear if he's alive or dead at this point, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, it ends up being, you know, we'll call it a 12-hour window, maybe definitely less than a day. And back in the assembly area, if you'll call it that, his guy's decide they're going to go get him, um, called a suicide mission. I'd like to point out that if, if that mission went up the chain of command at all, it would have been squashed. That's crazy. There's, there's nobody that's saying, 
oh, you four, yes, you four go back into that German-held town to search for your, it would have, it's a sacrifice. Those four would have died. It's not, and as cold as this sounds, it's not really, um, they're not going to risk a platoon to do that or a company to do that, to go back for one man. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a reason you have people missing in action that are captured. Um, But anyways, it doesn't matter. They go off and do it. And I just like to say how, how cohesive of a team he must have built already mm-hmm. for them to not know whether he's alive or dead, but for all of them to risk their lives and go back in there to find with the new guys. And that's important. They too. led it right. The new guys led the charge. That's what's important was like, I think that was, I think what's interesting there is Garnier's going to do it because it needs to be done. And that's why they didn't ask. They're going to, it needs to be done. It's no question. Like, of course they're going to do it. So you're not, they're just going to do it. And um, Garnier, that's not his job either. I mean, he is a NCO. He's got his own stuff to worry about. So this is his peer. It's not his own soldier that's lost. And, um, right, they were both team leaders then, weren't they? I don't think they were squad leaders. I'm not sure. But they were both NCOs regardless. And um, seeing that fire team actually be like, you know, that you can see that they were like, this isn't, this is our lane. It's not Garnier's lane. It's our lane. And they stepped up. And that's the deeds over words. And that's how they earn their stripes, if you will, um, of merit that, hey, you can be trusted. You're here. Um, you're giving yourself for others. That's what's asked. you got to prove it. Can I go back to something I brought up early on? This action is in that category of why the replacements were, in my mind, why the replacements were being killed at such a rapid clip. If they hadn't bumped into Bull and if the Germans had still been in that village as they were expecting, they would have died, I think. I mean, they almost did on the road. You remember the, the German half-tracks driving by at night? I mean, mm-hmm. they blink and they get mowed down. So to me, this is one of those examples of they really pushed that limit. It very easily could have gone the other direction. And it's another story about the replacements trying to impress maybe the old guys. But instead, this one worked out well and showed just how how much the team they wanted to be. And a little amount of luck. War. Sayer, anything else you want to add here before we wrap up episode four replacements? The end part was interesting. I like to think about this in terms of risk tolerance, what is success and what is failure? What, it, what does failure mean and how do we learn from it? And should we be scared of it and fear it? And, you know, you mentioned, you know, uh, it was a failure. Market Garden kind of intro that. But at the end, they have this Nixon. They're kind of, he's just smoking and joking with Winters as he does after the mission. Like, well, looks like we're going to have, that didn't work. We're going to have to try another way in, boys. And that was his attitude. It wasn't a failure. It just. That way didn't work. Let's, we got to find a different way into Germany. And then it closes with a quote, calling it a failure because, and it was an attempt to get into Germany is how I view it. And they tried and they gave it their all with one way. So that way didn't work. Pull back, regroup, try another way. So I don't view it as an, it's, it's a failure in the sense that it didn't, get them into Germany, but it, um, it still disrupted the German army. Of course it, um, it can be used as a, um, you can frame it in different ways, right? The event happened, however you want to take from it. I like Nixon's, you know, we stabbed this way, didn't work. We got to keep going. You can't dwell on the past. We're still not in Germany, right? So if, if we're going to call it a failure, it's just like we're going to keep dwelling on that, I think. That is just that attempt. That stab didn't work. Let's just think about, because I'm sure they learned lessons learned that did work. Things that were, um, that, they, that they probably learned from Normandy, they improved upon it. That's that 90-day thing. Um, and they learned the craft and art of warfare to be applied at a later day, hopefully even more hammer. Um, and maybe a better uh, better avenue of approach than what that prior one was. 
and learning how to coordinate with adjacent units from foreign war, uh, you know, that's the NATO kind of new world order crap coming in. Um, to me, it's, it's just training and progress to get towards the goal, which they're not there yet. And that's how you keep the, uh, hopefully, that motivation alive. That's a way. And so is the whole Christmas by home. You know, these are all different techniques of uh, framing mentally doing these challenges, which that's life too. just how you kind of think about things and kind of spin them in your head, if you will. Well, we'll be back soon with episode five. It's called Crossroads. It's an interesting mm. one. Oh, yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. That's next time on War Stories. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.